morning, we are currently travelling down the road through Romans. We're actually going verse by verse, and we're up to chapter 9. Chapter 9 being one of the most debatable and controversial chapters in all of probably Christian history. After leaving chapter 8, a marvellous chapter it is. It's just so amazing how divisive Christians are on chapter 9. And so I invite you to have your Bibles open, even though I will have the words up on the screen. And the title in, uh, for this message is in the form of a question once again. And the question is, does God have a heart for the lost? Does God have a heart for the lost? And some people are quite adamant about it and say, yes, yes, of course. But some people are quite reserved, depending on their belief, and say, mm, well, not maybe necessarily so. And so we're going to be going through this and exploring this question. And with that in mind, here's a warning. This is the most important sermon I'll be preaching from Romans chapter 9. It's the most important. So, therefore, I'm going to say, most likely, for some of you, maybe all of you, you actually might need to listen to this again. And as usual, it's available on Spotify or any prod, normal podcast except Apple still. I'm still unable to get to Apple. Um, and it's not anything to do with what I'm preaching on, by the way. It's just a, a mistake I made up in the start of beginning the podcast. I used a name that shouldn't have been. Anyway, long story. Um, so anything except iTunes. But Spotify is the most common. This is... And, and any website, anchor.fm. But I, I stress this uh, quite vehemently. <laughs> this is the most important message. And I'm only covering half a verse. <laughs> I, I came up to 6A last week and we're on 6B. That's all I'm covering. But we're going over 6A again. I say that is because our interpretation of Romans chapter 9 relies heavily all on this one verse. It's all on this one verse. If you interpret this, for instance, um, one way, okay, and I'm soon I'm going to have the, the picture of the duck and the rabbit, and if you're not sure what I'm talking about because you were away last week, stay with me. One way we interpret a verse, uh, we interpret this passage is based on this verse. The other way is based on this verse. It's all dependent on this verse. Verse 6. It's very important. All right, you're with me. Now, that said, we know Sunday mornings, it's just me getting up here and me spilling my guts. It's not an opportunity for you to speak out, even though I do, okay, it's okay for an amen here or a, a question every now and then. But let's make this more fun. Now, I've gone through Romans chapter, uh, Romans from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 9. And I've probably only had a couple of conversations here and then about what I've preached. It either means you're not listening or it either means I'm a really great teacher and you understand absolutely everything, which I still doubt every single morning I'm up here. I still worry about that. Or it's like we're at a stage where we agree to disagree. And I don't understand how we can agree to disagree without having that conversation. 
Either it's, there's a preacher that I follow and everything he says, I'm just going to listen to. That's him. Tim, if you disagree with him, I think you're wrong. Now, I confess I've been in that place, but being a pastor now, I don't want to be like that. I would like us to have the conversation. Why? Because I'm here studying the Word of God and I actually still want to know what is truth. Now, for some of us, that truth is we're content on it being just the gospel. Jesus died for my sins. Hey, he's the one that forgives me. But for some others, we want to know truth about the deeper things of God. We want to know truth about what is the meat of who God is. And this is such one such passage where a lot of Christians disagree on who God is in regards to his character, his love, and all that. So what I'm saying is, let's have the conversation. And we're doing that on a Wednesday night. But I understand that not everyone can make a Wednesday night. We're going through all these verses that explores mainly the side that... Um, the duck side, we're saying. I think I got it on the next page. The duck side. If you see a duck in this picture, I'm going to be relating that to someone who believes God has predetermined your salvation before you were even born. However, if you see a rabbit, that side, and some people do see a rabbit, that side, I'm referring to the non-Calvinist side. So a Calvinist is someone, and you need to know these names because I'm just going to be using them in and through the message. It's just easier to say someone who believes that. So a non-Calvinist, I'll refer to the rabbit. For us, being a church of Fraser Coast Baptist Church and being a pastor, I am neither one or the other. I'm not a duck or a rabbit myself, personally. But I'm saying it's okay to be a duck. It's okay to be a rabbit. But... I would like you to make that decision knowing that you can see a duck and you can see a rabbit. For some of you, that's very hard. Can you see the duck side of this passage, the duck's interpretation and why they interpret that, and can you see the rabbit's side? Now, for the picture, that's easy, but for the passage, that's harder. And it might be harder for some, depending on how many years you've been reading this passage, depending on who you listen to, depending on a lot of things. For some of us, I think we need, all need to get to the point, regardless of how long you've been a Christian, I think we need to sometimes put on new lenses, new thought processes, getting to the point where, regardless of how old I am, regardless of how long I've been a Christian, I am still teachable. I'm still willing to see the other side. And then let's have the conversation and then draw our own conclusions. And if it be that we still disagree, that's fine. This is a non-essential issue. But let's have the conversation. And by the way, if you can't make a Wednesday night, you can start a conversation by texting me in the middle of the sermon. It's fine. It's on, it's on silence, I think. It is on silent, yes. I'll put on the carpet so it doesn't vibrate. You can email me anytime. I've only done this... Um, I've had a conversation with one person in this church and we're up to 60,000 words. We're thinking about using, turning into a book. But I want to have more of those conversations. If it interests you, 
But please don't make any conclusions until you can see both sides. Well, 6, here we are. And 6A, um, last week I put it up as a statement, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed. That's probably in your version or something like that. Now, there is only one version that turns it into a question. And I believe it has to be a question because this is Paul answering an objection. It's an objection from the Jews. There's only one version. It was the New Living Translation that had a question in this. But I couldn't put all of the New Living Translation because I disagreed with the later part of the, trans uh, of the translation. So the NLT in 6a says, Well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? That's the objection that he's answering in Romans chapter 9. But the question is, what is his promise to Israel concerning the word? And notice how I have here word slash word of God. I have a capital W to reference the word being Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word, John 1, and the word became flesh. But also the word of God is referencing the message of Jesus, the gospel, the good news, everything that Jesus came to die for. So what is his promise when it says it hasn't failed? What has not failed? Because the Jews are saying, Paul, it's failed. Why has it failed? Well, look what's happened. You've just written to us that what was so special about Israel is that through Israel, the Messiah would come to save the world. That Messiah being Jesus Christ, according to Paul's eyes, according to Paul's words. Well, if that's the case, Paul, then why do the majority of Jews don't even believe it? Why do the majority of Jews are in opposition to it? It's failed. No, no, no. <laughs> Why has it not failed? Very interesting. And so I asked you last, I asked you last week to read this. And as you were reading it, if you did, you might have thought, now, this seems familiar. Hasn't he done this before? And if you've been travelling the road through Romans, all of it, and by the way, please, please, if, you, if, you're, if you're part of this church and you miss a Sunday, please do your best to visit the sermon, to listen to it, just so we're all on the same track. And so we can have that conversation. But you might be reminded, you may have been reminded of it in Romans chapter 3. In the start of Romans chapter 3, there were objections that Paul was addressing. And these objections are very similar. Very similar, if not the same. Romans chapter 3, it's pretty much saying unbelief will not nullify God's faithfulness. Because if you just turn there, He's, he's objecting to, well, what 
if some, this is verse 3, what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Just because the Jews don't believe, does that make this whole plan of redemption null, void, empty, useless, pointless, without effect, a failure? Of course not. Of course not. So, there has to be two, there are two conclusions, there are two interpretations to this failure. I should say this apparent failure by the Jews, because we know it's not a failure. Paul's saying it's not a failure, so it's not a failure, right? But what's the, what's, what's the promise that we're talking to? So, here's, here they are on the board. Some would say it's his promise to save Israel has failed. His promise to save Israel has failed. Is it a promise to save Israel? Because then that person would say, well, look, no, because, well, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, I just chose Jacob. And we're soon going to find out at the end of six is, well, not everyone of Israel is Israel. Or his promise to bring about salvation to the world has failed. I asked you last week, why do you think Paul, right in the middle, just points out what's so special about Israel in the previous verses? Is it just to remind them of who they are? No, I think the purpose of it is for them to be reminded that through them, the Messiah would come. Jesus Christ in the flesh would come. That's the promise, or is it? So his promise to bring salvation to the world has failed. Now, I personally believe it's the second and we're going to go through why and asking that question, what is the heart of God when it comes to the lost? Because that question, our view and our answer to that question will actually affect which one we see. So let's go to the promise itself. Let's go to the promise all the way found in Genesis chapter 15. The word of the Lord came to him. Who's him? Abram. This was before his name was changed to Abraham. It came to Abram. This man will not be your heir. Who's he talking about? He's talking about his servant, head servant, I think by, off the top of my head, Eliezer of Damascus. He was the head servant in his household. God, the Lord, is saying to Abram, this man will not be your heir. Why is he saying that? Because Abram didn't have any children. He's just been blessed by Melchizedek, saying you're going to be a, a, a father of many or an inheritor of heaven and earth and all that stuff. Blessing is going to come upon you. How in the world can I receive blessing when I don't have any kids? I'm childless. 
So it's not going to be a servant, the Lord says. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Obviously you couldn't. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord. And this is interesting. He credited it to him as righteousness. The Lord made Abraham righteous in his eyes just because Abraham believed the Lord. Now, there's nowhere in the Bible that says his promise is to save all of Israel. It could be interpreted as that because they're looking forward to a Messiah that would save them. Save them from what? In their eyes versus God's eyes. That's the question that I want you to ponder upon. Again, looking over verse 5. From whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is overall God blessed forever? How was God going to fulfill his promise to Abram? Was it going to be a plan that was just for the Jews? Of course not. In order for Abram to have children, to be the father of many, so many that it would overtake the number of stars in the, in the, in the galaxy, or in the universe, let's say. How was that going to happen? Well, of course, we know it was going to be through Jesus Christ, who would allow a way for not just the Jews to be saved, but for Gentiles, everyone else, us. And aren't you glad that he planned it that way? Now, just because the original people it was intended for, um, let's just say they, they don't believe it, does that mean it's been a whole waste of time? Does that mean it's been a failure? Of course not, because we're, we're basking in the glory or not ourselves, you know? Not a failure to us, to a Jew, maybe, or obviously. That's why they had the objection. So this is the purpose. This is the promise. Um, the other objection found in chapter 3 was the one at the start. What advantage does the few have? Again, this is facing or addressing that objection in chapter 3, where he says, or they saying, what advantage then has a Jew? What's the point of being a Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? And he says, much every way, chiefly because that unto them, or unto them were committed the oracles of God. Through you guys, the Messiah came. Through you guys, actually, absolutely everything about God's kingdom came. And we just read about that in verses 4 and 5. That's what makes them special. But the main thing is that Jesus came through them. That's the advantage. Notice, and it's just an opinion, I think he's just addressing more formally these objections. Because he doesn't do it very much in Romans chapter 3, because I think it's too soon. I think he needs to explain the whole gospel. 
And he has explained the whole gospel up to the end of chapter 8. And some say he's continuing a thought, and in a way he is. But he's just addressing this specifically to the Jews, and he's doing it to chapters 9, 10, and 11. And what our or your interpretation is on what this promise is, whether it's a promise to save all of Israel or it's a promise to make available to the whole world the gospel, it comes down to knowing the heart which God has for the lost. Or in other words, the question is, does God desire everyone to be saved? That's the question. Some in this room will say yes. Some in this room will say no. The reason is, is because for a Calvinist, there's a particular doctrine called limited atonement, meaning Christ only died for the elect, only for those who were going to get saved, only for those chosen before the foundation of the world. So let's go through some verses that addresses God's desire for everyone to be saved. In the next chapter, Paul is going to reference God's words himself. But to Israel, he says, All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Why is God stretching forth out his hand if he didn't die for them? Only a select few. Because obviously he's talking about the disobedient ones here. Ezekiel 18.32 For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. For God to die only for a certain few, can he say he takes no pleasure in the death of the others? Hosea 3.1 now, this one's interesting because the Lord says to Isaiah, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet she's an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Now, don't ask me about raisin cakes right now, okay? But get the analogy. His wife has committed adultery But he's saying, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel in the same way, love your wife. To a people who have rejected him. What's God's desire in that? 2 Peter 3.9, now some New Testament ones. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He wants everyone to come to repentance. Now some will say, yes, he only wants those who are the elect to come to repentance. But my question is this. 
Why does God have to be patient with you when he makes you believe? A Calvinist would say that God makes me believe. Why does he have to be patient then towards us, if that's the case? 1 Timothy 2.4 and then Titus 2.11. These are two verses that I just stole off Google. God our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved. So we see that in 1 Timothy 2.4. And then in Titus 2.11, we see, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And some might say, all kinds of people. But again, that's not in the text. It says all people. Now this some people have trouble with when we're saying God desires everyone to be saved. And so if God desires all men to be saved, then why doesn't he get what he wants? And so if you know someone, or if you come across someone who has this question for you, how do you answer them that? And I think a good way to do that is to refer them to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden. Now, we all know Adam and Eve ate of the tree. Did God desire them to eat of the tree? I think you would be ludicrous to come to the conclusion that he did. When he says, don't eat of the tree. So just because God desires something, does it mean it's going to happen? I can say for a fact, 100%, and I'm sure everyone can agree with me, God desired Adam and Eve to not eat of that tree. I'd love to have some, a conversation with someone who believes otherwise. Well, did it come to pass what God desired? No. So why do we relate this to everything else? It's just any um, horrific event that's happened in history. And I always refer to Adolf Hitler. Did God desire Adolf Hitler to kill six million Jews? Well, if you're a Calvinist, you actually have a hard time saying no. So, just because God desires it doesn't mean it's going to happen. And the reason is, we think of love. Dave Hunt wrote a great book, and he asked the question as the title of his book, What love is this? A God that forces his love on you. It's not in us. When we talk, look about, uh, uh, when we talk about our own relationships, I'm glad I didn't force my wife to love me. It's not love for us. I'm glad the other way around, too. I'm glad she chose to love me. And then the last thing is repeating Paul's words quite a number of times. In the next chapter, 
First verse we're going to be reading, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Okay? That's his heart's desire. And we just read in Romans chapter 9, the first three verses, again, this is why it's all connected. Christ is my witness. I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people. My Jewish brothers and sisters, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. That's huge. We just covered that. This is Paul's heart. Now, where does that heart come from? Where does that desire come from? Paul is divinely inspired by the, word of, by, the, by the Holy Spirit to write these words. I think we can safely say that if this is Paul's heart, that's God's heart. Because God's actually giving him those desires. He's not coming up with these desires by himself. It's something that's been empowered by the Holy Spirit. So can I truthfully say that does God desire this if I believe that he only died for the elect? He only died for a certain few. It's a contradiction. It doesn't come up. So let's see it from a duck's perspective. Does Calvinists, oh, by the way, sorry, um, this is, if you want to go a little bit deeper, does Calvinism agree with what Paul is saying here in Romans? That's the question. I say it doesn't. But the best a Calvinist can do is come up with an illustration. And the illustration goes along the lines of, well, think of, of a baby dying with cancer. There's plenty in the world today. And they die. Now, does God have the power to heal that baby? Yes, he does. But he doesn't. Why doesn't he? We can't explain it. We don't know. And they relate that same analogy to salvation. God, um, does God have the power to save you? Yes, he does. But why doesn't he? We can't explain it. No one can explain it. I say, because it's not true. But the thing wrong with that analogy, that illustration, is that you are relating an earthly analogy, something that does not have eternal significance. It's not of eternal value. Because the baby's going to be healed either way. And you're relating that versus something that is of eternal significance, something that is of eternal Either oh, consequences is the best word. When I say that, that baby's going to be healed because I believe that God, um, and, uh, whatever if, way you want to put this age of accountability or whatever, um, just read the, the book of 1 Samuel and you see Dan, uh, David's young born being killed off and, and, he's, um, and he's saying that he'll meet him again. Well, how do you explain that? Duck's perspective. Let's get the other perspective, though. How do you get the other promise? Well, it's easy, because you just read the rest of the verse. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. They are not all Israel that are of Israel. 
Not everyone who is in Israel is an Israelite. Not everyone who is a, uh, 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 in, the, in, the, um, in Israel is, is saved. And then they can say, look, I chose Jacob, not Esau. I saved Jacob, not Esau. And that's how you can interpret that other promise. But then next week, this is what we're going to get into. God does not desire all of Israel to be saved, they will say. And it comes back to the question, does God have a heart for the lost? Let's have that discussion. And have that in mind as we're going through the rest of chapter 9. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your heart. Thank you that you actually, I'm 100% convinced that you desire every single person on this earth to be saved. And with that comes questions of when and why and how and who and where. What are all those five W's and a H, Father? We've seen in your word that your desire is for everyone. And we just thank you that you thought of us. You thought of us when you looked before the corridors of time and, and knew that your creation would fail. You knew you had to plan. I, I, you, need, you knew you needed a plan of redemption for your people, not just your chosen people in Israel, but also everyone in the whole world. Thank you that you've included us. Help us to be strong and firm in our faith and know that you indeed love us unconditionally. And it's all because of what you have done on the cross through Jesus Christ. We thank you. We give you all the praise, all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.